Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, October 5th, 2016. We're going to depart from the... uh, Roseboro's ramblings this week and uh, pick up an important lecture by Don Carson. Explain that in a second. Tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of really, I mean, just bizarre, crazy things being said out there about God, and none of it can actually square with Scripture. Uh, And it's being done by the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles, and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those who we need to be listening to, whose books we need to be buying, whose small group curriculum we need to be studying instead of the Word of God. That's generally how that goes. And over and again, we show that what's being said is not sound biblical doctrine. It's not what Scripture says. It's not what the disciples taught. It's not what Jesus taught. It's not what the disciples believed. It's it's just made-up nonsense is basically what it boils down to. All right, every Wednesday we have what we call our light episode. It's not that the topic is light. It's just that we turn the microphone over and we do a listen to a good lecture or a good Bible teaching, something to help, you know, kind of build us up by way of contrast so that you can you can hear not only what bad teaching sounds like, but also what good exegetical teaching sounds like. And today I bring to you a lecture by Don Carson titled uh, Subtle Ways to Abandon the Authority of Scripture. Subtle Ways to Abandon the Authority of Scripture. And I thought this, like, hit it out of the park. I mean, I think he's really put his finger on the pulse of many of the problems that are happening in today's visible church. And so he did such a good job, I thought it was worth passing along to you. So let's get right to it. Without any further ado, here's Don Carson and the subtle ways uh, to abandon the authority of Scripture. At the risk of becoming a book peddler... I should mention a book that has recently come off the press from Erdman's called The Enduring Authority of the Christian Scriptures. It's a big book, about 1,250 pages, and it was put together by 37 uh, people from many countries around the world, all with a high view of Scripture. And the reason we put it together is because we are persuaded that evangelicalism is drifting toward a softer view of scripture again. We went through this 30 or 40 years ago, and Jim Boyce and others put together the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy, and various publications came out and so forth. So also this new challenge has produced a number of books already, but we meant this one to be a standard, uh, rather upmarket, and it deals with a lot of different issues. Uh, It deals with historical questions. That is, there have been a number of scholars who have tried to argue that a high view of Scripture, inerrancy, really was late on the historical agenda. It was invented by the Puritans, or it was invented by the Princetonians, or it was invented by the common sense realists, or it was invented by Warfield. But in any case, it doesn't come from the Bible itself. And um, 
And, and then there are philosophical essays, and there are uh, challenges that come from the way the New Testament quotes the Old. And there, there is a section, because this is now increasingly a global world, there's a section comparing the, the Christian scriptures with uh, the Bhagavad Gita and other writings from Hinduism and from Buddhism and from Islam and so on, so that we understand the world in which we live. So uh, that book is out there. I'm not going to repeat uh, its, its main findings. But um, more recently, I have been pondering the title that I submitted to this conference, Subtle Ways to Abandon the Authority of Scripture. I'm not talking about the abandonment of Scripture that takes place, for example, when a college student brought up in a Christian circle goes off to hear Bart Ehrman or Richard Dawkins for the first time and is simply blown away by skepticism and has no way of figuring things out. Um, that, that college student needs information, needs alternative reading lists, needs a sympathetic mentor. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about slightly more subtle ways by which we reduce Scripture's authority. And by we, I mean Christians, not least Christian leaders. Forewarned is forearmed, so here we go. Number one, selective silence. Selective silence. The grossest displays of this trick are everywhere evident, for example, in the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel movement. There are certain texts that are quoted again and again and again, but there are very few citations of uh, passages that talk about suffering. Or if we suffer with him, we shall also reign with him. Or take up your cross and follow Jesus. Or passages like Hebrews chapter 11. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. Closer to home, many evangelicals have avoided talking about certain disputed topics. We know that they will divide our churches. So we keep quiet about them. Whether roles of men and women in ministry, homosexual debates. It's not that we don't have historic, biblically defined positions on them. We just don't like to talk about them because they're painful, they're awkward. They get into the press and they can cause trouble. Or we see some people talking about these things in such an angry style that we don't want to be associated with them. But of course, the truth of the matter is, when we do that, we're secretly hoping the topics will become less faddish and go away, and they won't. What happens instead is that Christians in our congregations increasingly pick up the culture's values because we're not offering anything that is countercultural. And this is especially true of our young people, many of whom today are convinced that although they themselves are against homosexual marriage, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just another societal way of ordering things. Of course, systematic expository ministry is the best antidote. But even here we can, wittingly or unwittingly, de-emphasize certain things in our expository ministry. For example, supposing you begin a series of expositions on Matthew, and you come to Matthew 1 and 2. Well, there's lots to emphasize in Matthew 1 and 2. But I suspect that if we were expounding near Christmas Matthew 1 and 2, we would not particularly emphasize the dreams and angelic visitations that led the Magi away or that led Joseph down into Egypt, then led Joseph back. And then when he came back and yet another dream or an angel from the Lord to lead him away from Bethlehem up to Nazareth and so on, so on, we, we use generic terms like um, God led him to a safer place or whatever. But I have friends in Indonesia who work in Muslim contexts. And in the Muslim world, one of the greatest signs of God's presence and blessing and power is life 
directing dreams and angels. I have a friend there who's been very effective in Muslim evangelism who, who, who simply loves to expound Matthew 1 and 2 and especially emphasize the dreams and the visitations of the angel from the Lord. And so the question becomes in part, have we de-emphasized something because of sensibilities in our culture, whereas he is overemphasizing something in another culture because that is his location? Just because we are systematically expounding the whole of Scripture does not mean that we may not play games of emphasis and de-emphasis ourselves. So number one, selective silence. Number two, heart embarrassment before the text. I imagine in an assembly like this, all of us are convinced that the Bible does say quite a lot about hell. In fact, the Lord Jesus himself does. But some of us, I suspect, have introduced a passage like Luke 16, 19 to 31. In hell, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment. I am in agony in these flames. We've introduced such a passage by saying things like, I don't really like this doctrine, but you know, it's what the Bible says, so I've got to be faithful and preach it. Do you say that ever? God have mercy on your soul. Are you going to present yourself as more compassionate than God? Or we come to election and read Romans 9. And we may really deep down in our hearts believe it, but skimp on it just a wee bit, just because ah, we know it's going to split our congregation. That, again, is where 2 Corinthians 4, the passage read by Alistair in the first session, is so helpful. We have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience. Number three, subtle moves to legitimize things that the Bible condemns. Subtle moves to legitimize things that the Bible condemns. Zondervan has recently announced a new book edited by Preston Sprinkle called Two views on homosexuality, the Bible, and the church. One is affirming, and the other is non-affirming with respect to homosexual marriage. Now, at one time, the debate was between evangelicals and non-evangelicals, or evangelicals and Catholics versus non-evangelicals and non-conservative Catholics. But now the the boast of this book is that this has become an intra-evangelical debate. That is, there are some evangelicals who take the affirming side and some who take the non-affirming side. And that's demonstrated, you see, by a book that um, offers two views. In, In such a way that we're really bringing the debate Inside the evangelical camp, you can take either view and still be a happy evangelical. I've been saying for years that these five views books and three views books and four views books on this topic, that topic, or the other topic vary between extraordinarily helpful and extraordinarily dangerous. They're helpful because some of us really do need to enlarge our understanding of the elements of debate across the history of the church, how Christians have disagreed on some pretty important issues, on baptism, for, for example. And, and um, we, we, we need to understand what those debates look like on, on the, the, the nature of the relationship among the covenants and, and, and so forth. But on the other hand, it can also be a way of subtly shifting what is now viewed as tolerable and what is not viewed as tolerable. Recently, Pete Briscoe, the, one of the pastors at Bentry Bible Fellowship in Dallas, who's led the church into uh, a willingness to have women elders 
dependent in some respects on William Webb's trajectory hermeneutic. You follow the trajectories of scripture and beyond scripture to the contemporary world. And just as we've abolished slavery, so we should abolish any limitations on what women may do. Wanting us to agree to disagree. But the test case for living under the authority of scripture comes home to us again and again in every generation. And some of us, I count myself as one of them. Thinks that some of the think that some of these issues, although in some ways they're not foundationally important, the way the resurrection of Christ is important, or the way substitutionary atonement is important. Nevertheless, they have become important in our day in the same way that indulgences became important 500 years ago. Indulgences, at one level, was the wrong issue over which to split the church. Imagine splitting the entire Western church over Tetzelin indulgences. But it became the test case that dealt with justification. Will you live under the authority of the word of God or not? Over the authority of the Pope? Over questions of uh, grace and faith? Over eschatology and limbo and purgatory and assurance of faith and, and so on? It became a test case of of works righteousness. It, it, it became a, a, a biblical test on this question. Shall we live under the authority of the word of God or shall we not? And I think that there are one or two of those issues that are becoming like that for us today. Subtle moves to legitimize things that the Bible condemns. Number four, I swipe this title from Mike Ovi. The Art of Imperious Ignorance. Isn't that a wonderful title? The Art of Imperious Ignorance. If you want to read his article, it's in the Off the Record column in the most recent fascicle of Themelios, which, as many of you will know, is posted for free on the Gospel Coalition website. The Art of Imperious Ignorance, volume 41, pages 5 to 7. His point is this, Uh, at some point in debates, people listen to both sides of something or other, and some bright spark concludes, well, all of this debate demonstrates that the evidence is not very clear. And since it's unclear, we can't know the mind of God on these disputed matters. We are ignorant as to what God is truly saying. Now, clearly, that is sometimes a valid argument. What does it mean to be baptized for the dead? 1 Corinthians 15. Wow, I remember a long time ago, many decades, reading three articles written in the Catholic Biblical Quarterly in 1950-51 that surveyed 42 different interpretations of that expression in the history of the church. 42 And since then, I've counted another half dozen. And if you push me hard, I think I can narrow it down to the three most likely, but I'm not quite sure. I mean, I don't want to impose imperious ignorance. That is, if you think you do know God, bless you, I don't. But that's a little bit different than the cases I have in mind. That is based on an expression that occurs only once in all of Holy Scripture. That's why the wisest pastors and theologians across the centuries have tended not to put into statements of faith and the like expressions or theological reflections that show up once or only twice in Scripture. Not because God has to say things several times for them to be true, but because he may have to say things several times for us to understand what he's saying because we're stupid and slow. So when things come up again and again and again and again and again in Scripture, then it behooves us to say, What is the pattern that's going on? In in some issues, there's room for debate, this side or that side, and Christians will disagree. In other things, there's a consistent pattern. There is no biblical text, not one, that approves homosexual union. Not one. But if you impose imperious ignorance and show how... Oh, those texts all have their difficulties. Some people want to to know whether at Sodom the real sin was lack of hospitality or something. And and you, you debate every single one of them and then impose that ignorance imperiously. 
then it becomes wrong to say that you do know what the truth is. It's the imposition of imperious ignorance. What Mike Ovi does is draw an interesting parallel that I'd forgotten about until I read it again in his essay. It's an historical parallel. The council at Sirmium in 357, the council at Sirmium in 357 imposed what was in fact a pro-Aryan creed. That's proto-JW for you. They announced a prohibition in their decree against using terms like homoousios, one and the same substance, talking about the deity of Christ, and homoousios of similar substance. They wanted both terms banned because we can't know. It was the imposition of imperious ignorance. And they got quite spiritual about it. Who shall declare his generation, they quoted. There is mystery here. We cannot possibly fathom these things. Therefore, we cannot know. Yet Hilary of Poitiers and Athanasius of Alexandria viewed Sirmium as blasphemy. That's a pretty serious charge. For, first of all, the decree had an element of compulsion. They were compelling confessional ignorance. They were not saying, we are ignorant and can't decide. They, are, they were trying to impose confessional ignorance on the church. Moreover, the decree actually stops true propositions about who Christ is, such as the proposition regarding the eternal generation of the Son, from being affirmed. Worst, the claim of dogmatic ignorance because of lack of clarity actually allows people to adopt whatever position they want. Instead of asking what the scriptures say and doing more rigorous exegesis, the claim of imperious ignorance, no one can know. It's just too vague. It's too disputed. Allows you not to say, I don't know. Historically, what it's tended to do is allow people to claim whatever position they jolly well wanted. And it does not take much imagination to recall some of the similar debates today. All right, we're going to pause right there, pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. Or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, the balance of today's lecture by Don Carson on the subtle ways of to abandon the authority of scripture. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Jesus did not die for your 401k. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> no, oh, no, oh, a pirate's life for me. We pillage the thunder, we rifle the loot, drink up, be hearty, show ho. We kidnap and ravage and don't give a hoot, bring up, be hearty, show ho. Presents Church Day Select. Mark Driscoll, the Christian media is going crazy talking about all the horrible things you've done. Is this all true? I have no idea what you're talking about. I heard that 14 of your books contain plagiarized material. That is a heinous accusation. Mark, did you or did you not plagiarize other people's work? Well, my ghostwriter contacted me. Yeah. And he put quotes around the cited source material. Uh-huh. And I told him to get rid of the quotes and not say where they came from. Mark! 
That's plagiarism. Well, clearly my ghostwriter decided to make the same point using the exact same language as other authors. I simply refuse to take responsibility for massive coincidences. Mark, plagiarism is unethical. And why do you have ghostwriters to begin with? It's for their benefit. They do all the boring stuff, and I humbly take the credit. People do crazy things when they let fame go to their head. I'm simply protecting their mental health. Dishonesty is not a virtue, Mark. Now you're just attacking me. And my family. This has nothing to do with your family. Besides, I heard a quote from you about this exact subject. What did I say? You said, if you use the work of others, you are not a teacher, and you should quit your job and go do anything but speak. Those are your exact words, Mark. I do not remember saying anything close to that. It's documented, Mark. Well, clearly aliens have begun to take over the earth using technology to imitate real human life forms. It is our duty to warn the world this oncoming catastrophe. Now you're just copying the storyline from Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Why aren't you taking your own advice? I think it's very hateful to hold me to such an arbitrary standard of perfection. Mark... That's a horrible double standard. Well, I don't make the rules. Clearly you do. And, Mark, why are the tires in the Marisol bus so red? Oh, I did not notice that obvious fact until you pointed it out. Why are the tires red, Mark? Would you believe we're trying to paint red flames on them? No. That we're preparing our bus for our children's Christmas pageant. Mark, it's the middle of July. Okay, fine. I told all my haters and critics I'd have a meeting with them. Yes. And I had them gather behind Mars Hill Church. Go on. And I ran them over with the bus. Mark! That's... that's horrible! I then used the church's tithing money as my ticket onto the New York Times' bestsellers list. You make me sick, Mark. Well, that's what happens when people question my God-given vision. I highly doubt God has anything to do with your visions. Why are you not supportive of my divinely inspired decisions? Because they're both illegal and immoral, Mark. Well then, that just makes you a hater. What? No, I'm your friend, and I'm very worried about you. Well, if you love me, you would get behind my vision. I can't stand by and watch my friend destroy his life and the lives of others. Mark, you need to repent of these sins and be forgiven. Christ died even for these wretched sins of yours. Can't you plainly see what is wrong with this picture? Well, people blame me of intellectual thievery and an unloving attitude, so that's two things. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Oi, Captain! We got ourselves a heretic! (laughs) And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich. (laughs) And what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, we throw them in the boo box. No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. is to heretic, to R is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game refermanda 
and join the fight for the faith today. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that the Bible actually is authoritative. It's the Word of God, and to depart from it, even subtly, is extremely dangerous. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. You can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute, well, an amount that you pick. That's right. There's four ranks in our crew. You get to pick one. Powder Monkey is our lowest rank at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's made at $24.95 a month. Master Gunner, after that, at $49.95 a month. And then Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. This is a great way to support us. We have gifts for those of you who join our crew that we send out as our way of saying thank you. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute or make a one-time contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here is the balance of today's lecture by Don Carson on the subtle ways that people abandon the authority of Scripture. Here we go. Number five. Determinedly not getting right the balance of scripture oh there are a lot of examples to be given here a year or two ago in some of the circles in which i move there was a bit of a debate going on uh, on the doctrine of sanctification that has always been a difficult topic of course and um, so some of us got together on the telephone in a conference call uh, about a, a dozen of us because some of us thought it would be a good and useful thing for everybody to hear firsthand what the other party was saying so that so, so that there would not be shibboleths and and uh, straw men created and, and so on. we needed to hear fr- from one another's own lips what we understood is is um, is, is sanctification the the result of the proper application of the third use of the law or is sanctification really the result of merely responding well to the gospel of Jesus? And so on and so on. The debates became warm. So we all listened to one another on this phone call. went on for almost two hours. And then we all asked questions of one another to make sure we understood what the other one was saying. And then one of us asked the question, Now, I'm going to make up a case study, a problem. And I want to know how you would address it. So you're in your study at the church and somebody comes in with this problem and then the case study was laid out. Now the question is, how would you answer? We went around again. You know what we discovered? Blew me out of the water. We discovered that they all would have handled it the same way. So why were we arguing? And when we probed the question from that vantage point, we discovered that probably half the debate was over the fact that some came out of strong fundamentalist backgrounds, had reacted against it, and loved the freedom of grace and tended to emphasize how Christian ethics finds its driving power from the gospel itself. And others came from really loose backgrounds, without discipline anywhere. They had, they had been involved in, in multiple sexual partners and all the rest, and they had got converted. And what they saw the church needed was some discipline and rules and, 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 and uh, uh, strong, rigorous, confessional discipline in the, at, at the local church level. And so as a result, instead of really coming to grips theologically with a balance of scripture and putting things together, there was some reaction that was going on that reflected the backgrounds of the pastors themselves. It's understandable, but it took some serious conversation to get to that kind of self-acknowledgement. Do you, do, do, do you see? It's possible, in other words, to be um, determinedly not getting right the balance of scripture 
Um, there are many other examples that we could list. Number six, too little reading. Too little reading so as to remain too culturally constrained. Too culturally constrained by the broader culture, too culturally constrained by our own confessional bubbles. Um, that's really part of what was going on in the example regarding angels from Matthew 1 and 2. John Stott, of course, was single all his life. So his example, is, so far as reading is concerned, is, is not something that all of us can put into practice. But his commitment, his effort was, all the days of his life, apart from the reading he was doing to prepare the next talk, or the next Bible study, or the next sermon, he tried to reserve an hour a day, a half day a week, a day a month, and a week a year for serious reading. Of course, we all know the name of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Most of us aren't going to be able to put in the hours that he put in. And uh, we hope not to die of gout at the age of 57, too. But on the other hand, his aim was to read six serious books a week. Now, people have different speeds of reading, and, and there are different demands on time, and different stages of life. And if you have three or four teenagers in your home, that's going to chew up some hours in a big hurry. You put in all the caveats you like. But some of us need to do some more serious reading, because that will help us on many fronts, to get things right. If all you read is biblical theology, you need to read some systematic theology. If all you read is systematic theology, you need to read some biblical theology. If all you read is theology, you need to read some commentaries. If all you read is commentaries, you need to read some, some devotional literature and some serious theology, and so on and so on and so on. Then in any case, you need to be reading some books that unpack the, 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 the culture a little better, and, and on and on and on. Uh, pastors are first and foremost GPs. They're general practitioners. We don't have the right to become specialists and the third picket fence to the right. It, it's, 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 it's part of pastoral ministry that our responsibility is to unpack the whole counsel of God to the whole people of God. And that does require some serious reading time. Failure to do this will almost always issue in too many wobbles in our reading of Scripture with the result that scripture itself is not functioning as the authoritative truth that it is, in fact. Number seven, the failure to be bound by both the formal principle and the material principle. Let me explain. Confessional reformed evangelicalism has always said we are bound by two principles, the formal principle and the material principle. The formal principle is the word of God. The material principle is the gospel. Well and confessionally fleshed out. Do you see, if we're bound only by the formal principle, then you have to say that you share that formal principle with Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and others. The formal principle, that is the affirmation of the truthfulness and reliability of the word of God, does not necessarily guarantee you genuine submission to what the word of God actually teaches. Unless you think that your friendly neighborhood Jehovah's Witness has got it right when he affirms the truthfulness and reliability of Holy Scripture. That's what makes me a little nervous when I hear somebody saying, I don't need to read theology, I just preach the Bible. I don't need theological training, I just preach the Bible. Any self-respecting Mormon can say that. Because there is a material principle as well. The material principle and the formal principle interact with one another. It's not that there are two separate principles and neither the twain shall meet. After all, you still want to say that it's the formal principle, the authority of the word of God, which shapes and reshapes and reshapes our understanding of the gospel as we come back to study the word of God again and again and, and enables us to develop a, a, an informed confessional grasp of what Holy Scripture says regarding what the gospel truly is. 
But at the same time, when you start doing your exegesis of the next passage of Scripture, you carry that confessional understanding in your mind, in your brain, in your hermeneutics, in your exegesis, as you start reading the passage that is next on the agenda. And it helps to shape what you see in that text. So that although the authority line primarily runs from the text to your theology, there's a sense in which the material principle, the shaped theology, then also helps to delimit how far out you go in your understanding of what that text says. So you don't come to a passage like the end of John 14, where Jesus says, my father is greater than I, and start saying, well, I'm going to have to think this one through from first basics all over again. Does that mean that God is a greater God, the father is a greater God than Jesus is God? Why don't you think that way? Well, the reason you don't think that way is because your mind has already been shaped by enough of biblical truth to, 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 to know that, that there are other texts in the Gospel of John and elsewhere in the New Testament. So, so the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was God's own fellow, but he was God's own self. And, and there is the confession of Thomas, my Lord and my God. And, and, and Jesus does not respond, oh, you're going a bit over the top there, Thomas. Uh, uh, back off just a wee bit. I'm only a junior God. Um, and, and, and because you are, you are familiar with many texts, therefore you are, you are allowing your understanding of Scripture up to this point to reshape how you will understand what's going on in, in John 14. So to some extent, all of us are doing this all the time. It's inevitable. It's part of being human and, and, and having a finite brain. But being intentional about it is a bit different. That is to recognize that we are bound by the word of God and we are bound by the material principle. That is the summation of what the gospel is about, of what God is about, what human beings are about, what the cross is about, what the purpose of God's self-disclosure in scripture is about, what Jesus is about, and so on, so on, so on. We are bound by all of that, 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 that itself feeds back into our understanding of how scripture works and functions in our lives. Failure to be bound by both the formal principle and the material principle almost always issues in exegesis that is woefully lacking. It tends to be shallow. It tends to be psychological. It tends to be merely moralistic. It is not profoundly faithful to Scripture. That also has a bearing even on how we think about some other larger issues. How do we address Islam, for example? Well, some of us want to address it only politically. But if we're going to think about evangelizing our Muslim neighbors, we're going to have to recall the fullness of the material principle regarding the gospel. We are going to approach them with confidence, with joyful, self-sacrificing, godly, righteous, self-denying, giving evangelism. You cannot fruitfully evangelize people you don't love. Number eight, the lust for the merely technical. I've been teaching seminary for enough years now that I've heard from many generations of students this complaint. When I first came to seminary, I loved reading the Bible. It was my pleasure. Uh, and now I'm here and I'm taking Hebrew and Greek, you know, luo, luais, lue, luamen. What's the next one? Luate. And, 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 and now I have to do my exegesis and my line diagrams. And, 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 and you know, the, the joy of it's all, it's, it's all gone. I mean, uh, where is my pleasure in, in, in reading the Bible? And when I was a young man, I responded by saying something like, well, you've got to make sure you preserve your devotions. Where, where, where you read the Bible for some part of the day um, in a devotional, reverential frame of mind. Uh, f forget your Greek exegesis. Just, just read the Bible on occasion devotionally and, and let God speak to you through its pages. I never say that anymore. I never say that. The reason is because that's, inter that's, that's introducing bifurcation. So when you're doing your Greek exegesis, it's still the word of God. You're still to approach it reverently. You're still supposed to be listening. 
And when you're reading devotionally, you still should be trying to get it right, not just looking for pious thoughts that hit you out of the sky. Did you, did you see? Whether we're reading at a more popular level and call it devotional, or whether we're doing detailed exegesis and look thing, looking things up in grammar books and so on, it still is the word of God. To have a bifurcation between rigorous thought, rigorous scholarly work, to whatever level we have been adequately trained, and devotional reading is a huge mistake because we are always dealing with the Bible as the word of God. Avoid the lust for the merely technical. Number nine, the lust for the contemporary philosophical agenda. The lust for the contemporary philosophical agenda. Now here I would spend a lot more time on this particular item in a different sort of conference to different sorts of people. Um, I do recall an interesting review I read in Christianity Today 35 years ago. Clark Pinnock had just come out with his book, uh, Scripture Principle. Um, and it was reviewed in CT by uh, Roger Nicole. You will know the name of uh, Roger Nicole, I'm sure. It, it was a very fair review, but it ended up by saying, at the end of the day, uh, every theologian has to balance out the need to address the contemporary world with the need to be rooted in the confessionalism of the past. Dr. Pinnock, Nicole says, has shown that he is interested in the former question, but sadly, he has lost track of the latter question. That is to say, it's possible so to be driven by the desire to be contemporary or to address the new culture, whatever it is, whether on philosophical terms or sociological terms or, or whatever, that, that what we begin to lose is a sense of any Christian's deep indebtedness to the historic confessionalism of the church. It's not for nothing that Jude 3 speaks of the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So if you so stress, for example the postmodern sensibilities that we all understand things a little bit differently because we're all finite. And, and, and if, if we, we follow the track of what's called neo-pragmatism or American pragmatism, which, which sees Bible readers not as finding the truth, but using the Bible. We use the Bible in our particular community or we use the Bible this way or that way in our particular church. We can sometimes pick up that language and realize how profoundly manipulative it can be. The Bible is merely a text to be used as opposed to God's self-disclosure. Of, of course, there are some things to be done with the Bible that enable us to use it in edifying ways, but those ways are always bound up with fidelity to what the text is actually saying. Well, I would love to say much more about that question, but the contemporary uh, definitions of um, of uh, our cultural climate put forward by people like Charles Taylor uh, in his, his extraordinary treatment of uh, secularism and, and things like this have sometimes meant that Christians have capsized too quickly on um, uh, a wholehearted submission to the word of God addressing that culture rather than uh, being in some ways taken over by it. And finally, then we'll throw, throw it open to questions. Anything that reduces our trembling before the word of God. Alistair Begg quoted at the end of his address, Isaiah 66. God looks to those who are humble and of a contrite spirit and who tremble at his word. And to see these things in comparison with who we are. You've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass. And all their glories like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of the Lord endures forever.
I've read some interesting reviews recently of uh, the enduring authority of the Christian scriptures, and some of them are trying so hard to be amusingly snarky that I want to ask, do you ever tremble before the word of God? But, but it's not just with respect to our stance on scripture. Uh, you, you and I both know some names of preachers who have arisen out of the reformed camp, the young, restless, and reformed camp, who doctrinally have remained pretty robust on the whole until the final breaks came, whereas their lives were falling apart with arrogance, brokenness. In other words, the issues are not merely intellectual. Anything that reduces our trembling before the word of God. Anything that encourages us to think that growth in our sector is due to our gift. Anything that fails to see that gospel centeredness is more than a confessional stance. It's a how we live stance. It's a moral stance. It's a transform life stance means that we lose some of our trembling before the word of God. The question is how our lives adorn the doctrine of the word of God. Anything that reduces our trembling before the word of God is the last of my items on subtle ways to abandon the authority of scripture. Now, this is a pretty negative address. But you can always buy the book and get the positive stuff. <laughs> so what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook. Facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.